You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Here we are, folks, episode 41, and we've all survived Christmas. What is going on, folks? Hope you had an amazing, amazing holiday season there with just the best people you could ever imagined in your life. Who can still do up their top button on their jeans? I wear stretchy pants at yeah, Christmas. That's a good trick. I actually bought a turkey dinner sweater when we were in Inverness last at the Quincy Market. It's long and it's like a snuggie, but nice. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty looks really good. <laughs> Pretty good looking. Huh? Yeah. Good looking sweater. <laughs> well, I got to say today's guest, Laura Simpson, has been at her work for so many years and I really admired her just commitment to her work. Yeah. She's the best. And she's the first guest I think that we've had that while she might not be um, your traditional idea of an artist in that she hasn't made a career as a musician or a painter like we have, she's been one of the most profound advocates for the arts. She champions the arts. She champions the arts. That's a really good way of putting it. So I, she's had a long history of... Just experience, different experiences. She's been into journalism and, well, you'll hear. You'll hear everything she's done. Yeah, and we get into it quite a bit, but she was recently on Dragon's Den with her company Side Door. And, yeah, they they got the offer. They slayed the dragon. Yeah, as they say. Does anyone say that? I don't know. We are. I got to say, though, too, before we go into this interview, that's an impressive milestone in your career. But everything she's done before that, in my opinion, is equally as valuable. Yeah, she's she's really awesome, super smart and uh, a great person. And we'll dive right into it now. All right. Woo. Get your eggs. Get some rash. Cream. You're so grateful for the rash. <laughs> I am the luckiest man in Thailand. Yeah. So, Laura Simpson, how are you? What's going on? I'm doing well. I'm like, you know, I feel like the end of the year. Sometimes you have this. You can't. You can't get to the end of the year fast enough because you just need a really big break. Yeah. Um. But I feel like I kind of had a bit of a breaking point recently that i was like okay i got through that i actually am in this renewed state of energy for the last leg of the year it's amazing um, but it's always a roller coaster so i'm probably on the up part of the roller coaster at this stage well that's where we want all our guests to be <laughs> hands in the air fireworks going off <laughs> yeah. we, we got some fireworks to light off midday after we have this conversation but you recently had some 
very exciting stuff happen. And we have a lot to talk about that will uh, start much earlier in your life. But <laughs> I think it'll be cool to just to start, di- dive start in the middle. Dive right in, uh, kind of right now, where you are with your company side door and what happened on Dragon's Den. Yeah, so it's funny. Um, more people reached out to me after I did Dragon's Den than ever before through all the things that I've done in my yeah. life. And I think it's because it's sort of just very accessible. You're on CBC television and yeah. everybody kind of knows the show. So, um, And it's in season 17 that's so, wild. So it's been the survivor for a while. of Canadian That's television. Right. Um, yeah, the there was a producer who actually reached out to me through LinkedIn and said, you know, I've been following you guys for a while. He was a fan of Dan's, yeah. my co-founder Dan Mangan, who's a touring artist. And um, he said you should try out, and so we did, and got immediately accepted. And because it was tryout via Zoom. Okay. Still. How, um, how does that work? We just did a pitch on like video, sent in some material, and that was it. They they were good with the pitch. And so, you know, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be on the show. Even when you go and record, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to yeah. be on the show. Um, So we initially I, it was only going to be me to pitch because Dan was on tour and it was going to be the only time they were recording was, you know, while he was touring. And yeah. in the end he flew from, I think Calgary and landed in Toronto. We shot in the morning and he flew out. It was less than 24 hours back to a different city where he played that night. So it was just like we squeezed it in and, yeah. and we had done this concept before I actually did it with Jen Grant before our early days of Side Door, where in order to explain the concept of what we do, we wanted to have an artist performing, and and uh, they wanted Dan, because he's a bit of a CBC darling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so Dan was the guinea pig where we set up the state, the whole set like a, a living room. And, you know, it looked I, awesome. I could say, yeah. you know, and they had the fairy lights and everything. And, and I could say, you know, imagine dragons, imagine dragons, uh. <laughs> imagine you dragons um, are in your living rooms with your friends and your dog and you're sitting around and, and this amazing artist who you've selected is coming to play for you and your friends. And then Dan starts playing. And then we go into the concept and the platform, that sort of thing. But it was an effective way to on television say, you know, kind of imagine yourself in this situation and this can be something that you access through our platform. So when you issued your pitch, did you include, was it more or less just a condensed version of what that screening would have been? Yeah. Um, I can't even remember what that looked like, but yes, it. I think we, we did like a short uh, potential like script, right? Because you're trying to do a pitch, but it's not like the normal pitches we do. We're like, how is this going to be attractive for television? Yeah. And Dan and I are not any strangers to television um, in understanding that this is entertainment and it needs to be entertaining. But when you're not selling, like on on Dragon's Den, usually you're selling a widget of some sort mm-hmm. that people can pick up and do something with. Um, so yeah, I think it was part of our pitch was to say, like, we're going to do a performance and we're going to make people understand what this, the, the end result of using our platform is by doing this performance. 
And you did get an investor out of it as well. We did. We were gunning for Arlene. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. And it's funny because at the time, like, the thing is, is that, and you know, I don't even think anybody wants to get into this on this podcast, but the world of um, equity investment is not that exciting and not actually that well known. Um, but we weren't in the middle. We weren't fundraising at the time. And we actually didn't want to do the deal at that time. So that deal isn't still pending. I was in the middle of closing another deal and taking on too much investment at any one time in your career just means that you're diluting everybody's shares and you're maybe taking on more risk than you need. And I come from a small business background, so I try not to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. so actually... We haven't worked with Arlene yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everybody the, wants to give me money. But yeah. <laughs> I wish I could say that was true. It sounds like that. It's not like that. Um, but, and it's also the money thing too. Like people are like, you have $500,000 now. And first of all, we didn't because we hadn't gone through with the deal. But I wasn't, I wasn't sharing that with everyone because it's hard to explain that in, you know, yeah seeing somebody in the grocery store where I'm like, yeah, thanks. Congratulations. Yeah. Bye. Okay. But then, you know, just the concept of what that money can do is really difficult to, to explain because, you know, I run a tech company and people forget that that can be really expensive or maybe just to have no idea how expensive that is to run a technology platform. So it's like, yeah, $500,000 is a, a huge sum of money in so many different projects. And for us, it is also a huge amount of money, but only for a certain period of time to do certain things. Sure, you know? it's relative to the work it's that relative. you're doing. Yeah. yeah. So for us, the whole Dragon's Den experience, honestly, we really just wanted to get exposure. And, you know, there's the joke of the dying from exposure that we always make fun of in the music yeah. industry. But in this case, we really wanted it. We wanted more hosts. And then yeah. we quadrupled the number of hosts in last month. So we were really happy with that. Well, and I think part of that was because you were able to give such a realistic sample of what the environment would look like. Like that was a brilliant way to to kick things off. And I think you were saying you're getting more attention from this than most things. And I, I think people are curious about what it's like to be on Dragon's Day. Yeah. So yeah, like, Mike and I wondered if you were more nervous to be here today for our podcast or for Dragon's Den audition. So we can start there. <laughs> well, you guys are buds. So I'm not nervous at all. And this is a lovely studio. Um, no, I. it wasn't nerves. I don't think I felt nerves. I was just saying to Mike earlier, I don't, I th- I don't think I felt nerves about being on Dragon's Den or being on television, but I don't have any notes. And you're speaking for 45 minutes in a lot of ways about numbers yeah, and you can't refer to anything or make sure that you're saying the correct thing. Whereas in a real pitch, I would have my notes and, and be able to look up things and verify what I'm saying is true because it's not that I don't know them, but you're, you're speaking about so many things and having to remember so many things. And anyway, so that was a challenging one. And it goes from a 45 minute session of just being completely drilled. Like there was no breaks. I was just trying to remember who asked what question and going back and answering and then they cut it down to seven minutes and so you don't know and that was in may and it was aired in november so you don't know for months how you're going to be represented and to have your company summed up in seven minutes on television is a really 
you know, it, I didn't care how I looked. I cared how the company was represented. Of course. You know, that's yeah. that's what I was worried about. And in the end, it was fine. Do they let you know in advance that these are some of the types of questions we'll be asking so no. that you could prep that? Wow. I mean, you kind of understand that they're going to challenge you on certain things like you work with the producer and like they're probably going to do this but you don't talk to the dragons at all there's no contact with they're the talent you know the producers are kind of like maybe helping you predict what they might ask but you don't really have any clue mm. you know it's funny how certain things just really resonate with with people and you could be growing the company to be a, a billion dollar company if and maybe that's just you working behind the scenes, but when you're on TV, yeah. something that that everyone just understands, like Laura and Dan are on TV and they got five hundred thousand dollars. Like I know with my band, like one of the things that people still talk about is when we had our music on hockey night in Canada. All right, exactly. It's like just well, we've done lots of things yeah. aside from that too, but just something people like watching hockey and seeing a song played there, like the tragically hip were played the night before us and uh, Leonard Cohen was after. So they think that like, oh my God, they made it. That's right. So it's just because it's, I guess it's tangible. It's just people can really see that something's happening and a lot of what you would be doing and what I would do and what Chris does is behind the scenes. That's right. And they don't really get to see the work that we're doing. So it's it's nice that there's ways that that can be shown, especially for a company like yours, which is, like you said, a digital. How did you describe it? Oh, I it, I would call it a tech platform. Tech but platform, but, yeah. but I think half the time nobody knows what we do. So being on television and being able to explain it is a yeah. gift. You know? And the the presentation was perfect. Like you you nailed that. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah. And so with that in mind, because we often part of the reason actually we started this podcast was kind of to demystify the life of the artist and entrepreneur, because mm -hmm. we are often showing either the highlight reel or, yeah, these public facing things that people can maybe better understand or relate to. So we like to really dig into this stuff that nobody sees. Yeah. So if you can kind of paraphrase or give us your, your explanation into the behind the scenes, like what does your day to day look like? Oh man. Different, I'm sure every day, but Yeah, I I you know, I manage a team of 10 and plus 3 um contract support workers that do, you know, just show support. Um and we're a very we're a very laterally structured team in that everyone kind of has a lot of freedom in 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 their own departments to decide what they're going to do and I'm really there just to help ask the right questions and drive the overall goals of the company. Um, and we're located all over North America, actually. So it's all remote where I'm on the zone. Like my, my kids make fun of me of what I do all day. It's just, they pretend they're in front of the computer, just talking and yelling at people, not yelling, but you know, that's all they think I do. And, yeah. and it really, in a lot of ways I am, I'm speaking with that, my team, I'm speaking with lots of potential partners and, and potential investors and, um, you know, we we often are trying to find a way to amplify our message and help people understand uh, the behavior switch that we are proposing. Because what we're what Side Door is doing is not a it's not a thing that exists in the world in a really um, 
like, oh, I get it right away kind of way. So we spent a lot of times trying to reformat our messaging and redo the platform and the product and how people experience it and how people learn about it and how we treat them when they arrive. And, you know, like it's it's like tinkering to the nth degree. Like we're just constantly trying to make it a little bit better and a little bit more understandable reach more audience and you know like i was speaking to a jeweler friend of mine the other day and she was mentioning how she hadn't changed her receipt email in like a decade i was like oh my god we change ours like every three weeks yeah how nice that must be (laughs) yeah we i mean we're looking at like the conversion between when somebody clicks a button on one page and goes to the next page and there's like you know maybe 20 steps between doing that and, and creating a show and we're looking at every single conversion in between to figure out if we can make it a little bit better a little more more understandable like that's my day-to-day is just internal tinkering and external explaining you're a professional tinkerer <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how, how did you get so involved in the music industry i met you about 15 ish years ago at music nova scotia and my entire life and time that I've known you, you, you've been involved in music in some capacity. And what, what really drew you towards that? Um, it's funny. For my homework for this podcast, I listened to Trevor Murphy yeah. um, when he was on. <laughs> and I was like, you know, Trevor and I are, I mean, we've known each other for years. But we're kind of like the male and female version of the, the, yeah. Like our tracks are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't grow and grow up in such a small town, but I did grow up going to all ages gigs in Halifax yeah. and all my friends were in bands. And I really quickly realized that I was like the defender. Like I really wanted to make sure that my artist friends got paid what they said they were supposed to be paid and all that stuff. And I was really centered around live shows, like going to Cafe Lay or, you know, those kind of places. Um, but then I, same as Trevor, went into journalism. Like I was doing live music photography and getting paid for that. Yeah. Um, Joel Plaskett's Truthfully Truthfully album was my first album cover that I oh, ever nice. did. And bass players from Inverness on that album. There you go. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And um, and you know, just trying to get a way into the world. And I, I like nobody really knows how to get in the music industry when you're just starting. And so that was my, it was obvious that I could do that. And then I went fully into journalism for like seven years. And then I didn't come back from that until I went to Music Nova Scotia because it was the switch between media to communications that I could make. But I mean, I always wanted to be in music. I just couldn't figure out what my in was. I was like, okay, (laughs) I guess I'll just like circle around these places for long enough and I like how you described yourself as a defender of your your friends, the artists, and I've always seen you in that way because at Music Nova Scotia, you were helping people like me try to get funding to go do the things I needed to do. Inside Door is essentially filling a gap for musicians to be able to make make income, make connections, do all the things they need to do, and just first off a thank you to to you (laughs) and uh, people like you who who are doing the work but it just it just means so much to to have people out there who who care about what what artists are doing and yeah it's without people doing that there'd be 
nothing for us. Well, I appreciate that. I can't not do it. I feel very, it's the thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning is just yeah. the injustices of this industry. And one of the biggest things I learned doing that job when I was the funding program officer was, you know, and I wasn't the jury. I didn't get to decide who was getting the money. So yeah. I got the unique privilege of working with artists, trying to build those project applications, watching the jury deliberate, then doling out the funds and then doing the follow-up with the artists. And it's like, you know, people were always doing in earnest everything they could with the money that they got to do the best. And so often it's still failed. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, I probably did, I probably funded around 400 artists a year when I was doing it. And I did that job for four years. And, um, I think just the lessons I kept learning was this is a broken system and I don't want it. I don't want to work in a system that sets people up for failure. And so it really started percolating early on that I wanted to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Kristen, do you know what's awesome? What, Mike? Real food bars. They're so delicious. They are delicious. I take them on my runs with me because they're such clean fuel. Like you're out on the track and you open up a bar while you're running? Yeah, just tear it open right there on the spot. That's versatile. They source all local ingredients. All local? So they call themselves Made with Local because they support so many local farmers and food makers. Where are those farmers based out of that they support? Nova Scotia. Holy smokes, this is (laughs) getting even better and better. Where can you buy their products? So they still manufacture in Nova Scotia, but you can find their product all across Canada now. This is unreal. And they started out as just a small table at a farmer's market and have now achieved B Corp certification. That sounds pretty fancy. Yeah, they have tons of delicious flavors. I'm partial to anything with peanut butter and chocolate, as you know, but they also have lemon and blueberry, uh, gingerbread for the holidays. Oh man, they are pretty darn delicious and healthy. Like when I eat like seven in a row, if I ate seven Mars bars, you know, I'd feel like I was gonna die, but I eat seven of those and I feel like I can take over the world. Yeah, you could lift a car after that. Yeah, you get this, like, power in your bones. Made with local. And where can we find these bars and all the great products they create? So I usually pick up my real food bars just at our local grocery store, but they're also found in lots of health food stores, gas stations, and little markets across the country. They are doing awesome, and they taste awesome, nutritious, and delicious real food bars. Real food bars. Made with local. Made with local. And side doors connecting artists, musicians specifically with with hosts and in the intimate setting of their home or, or however they choose. And was the motivation behind that first and foremost to get money in their pockets? Yeah. Yeah. Money in their pockets. And it was the best ROI I saw because I was doing house concerts at my own place from 2011. My kids grew up with that. Like they can fall asleep to rock shows in the living room, you know, yeah. and I really felt like that was a setting that, you know, people thought that I did that because I worked in the music industry. I'm like, no, 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 anybody can do that. I really want the accessibility to be part of that. And, you know, and it didn't have to be a a house and it didn't have to be a concert. That's something that Dan and I always, you know, say and realized early on. 
And so we we did branch out and we've had performances of all kinds in spaces of all kinds <laughs> since we started doing that. But it was like, how do you reduce the amount of, you know, cost for these shows? And it's not for every artist and it's not for every person. Yeah. But we definitely saw that there was a way to get money in pockets that way. Did you forming Syrup Factory, which was both a place to hold house concerts and became another company of its own. Mm -hmm. But when you started hosting the house concerts, is that where the idea for Side Door came from? Yeah, for sure. I remember, like, I was specifically sitting at the back of my yard watching Mardine just blow up my neighborhood. And all the neighbors had shown up. We had, like, tourists walking in off the street. And, I mean, that show, I was like, it's working. And everybody's really happy. And the artists are going to get really well paid. We had, like, a full... We had sold not just tickets to this mini festival. We had, like, seven bands in my backyard that day. But, like, food. So we, like, put a pricey ticket on it. And we sold it in, like, an hour, you know? Because at that point, I had been doing the shows for a long time. And I was like, this is all I want to do. <laughs> I just want to yeah. host shows. I just want to <laughs> feel like this. I want to give people these experiences. I want the artist to walk away feeling like this is the way it should be. Yeah. And um, yeah, I I started drawing out what this thing would look like back in 2015 before I ever did anything about it. But the Syrup Factory was, when I when I left Music Nova Scotia and I started the artist services company, the Syrup Factory, yeah. that was like, okay, let me... Let me try my hand at a on like a business that's you know in the music industry, but I wasn't that great at it. Like I wasn't, I wasn't great at figuring out how to market people's <laughs> releases, and I didn't even know how it's to. It's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> no, so I and and so I quickly had hired Sarah Jamer, who was yeah. right out of school, and she turned out to be a dynamite person yeah. and still is and so you know we became partners and she eventually just took over the management of that whole company yeah. but i mean for me it was just like how do i dip my toe into this world and i didn't ever understand how to make side door until a couple of years in but i really appreciate this part of your story because i think a lot of young entrepreneurs or those pursuing a life in in the arts or any business They might see someone like you and think they were just on Dragon's Den and you've achieved all these things. But it's been there's been a lot of steps come before where you are now and you've had lots of different types of jobs and you've you've taken action to get yourself here. But do you feel like you've been kind of guided for like one step to the next or what what led you to kind of be constantly evolving? Um, I mean, I am I'm very driven by trying to find ways to make it easier for artists. Um, It's been a theme for everything. And, and just, you know, so I think you look back on your path and you realize that it kind of does all make sense in that way, but there's a lot of meandering for sure. Like, I mean, I did an off grid camp for adults two years in a row and that really doesn't have anything to do with music. There's a lot of musicians there, but make do Make do camp, yeah. And, um, but even that experience uh, helped me understand how to work with people in a way that has per, like permeated the culture of Side Door now. And I've had people work at Side Door for years and lots of them, and, you know, I'm honored that they would say this, but lots of them would say it's because of the culture that they stayed 
you know, they're dedicated to the mission too, but we've tried to create a culture around how to treat each other. And that extends to the people we work with. And I think that a lot of that came from working at Make Do Camp. And, and I thought I wouldn't have, you know, known that if I hadn't taken that left mm-hmm. turn. So I think it is important to sort of, you know, acknowledge all those different parts of your life that, you know, lead to this one thing, you know. How did uh, Dan come into it all? Yeah, Dan um, and I met because I was talking about this idea to people, um, I guess, just to pull the threads of, you know, how to do it, I guess. And I'd mentioned it to Rich Coin at some point, and he knew that uh, Dan was also doing something similar with, uh, he had a sub-label underneath the Arts and Crafts. Um, so he was supporting artists, including um, Walrus from here, mm-hmm. and trying to get them gigs through doing house shows because that's how he really got a foothold. And so he had, like, done a some sort of survey on Facebook to acquire people who want to do that. And yeah. I, This is how businesses are right? born, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, it was just a spreadsheet. Um, I dare say a very unorganized <laughs> spreadsheet that, that didn't have any way to sort columns. I was like, damn you, what is this? <laughs> We all know the music industry is built on spreadsheets. Um, But anyway, we met because uh, I was in Los Angeles when we got started talking, and then I moved back, and in 2016, he was here for a show with the symphony, and we met at the Lord Nelson Hotel, and we had brunch and talked about our ideas, and we were so on the same page, and... As soon as, like, he was like, I, let's do this. And I think you should be the captain of this ship. I remember him saying that. And I was like, I got home and I was so friggin' pumped. I jumped uh. so high, nearly hit my head at the top of the door frame. I was just like, because I knew that I could do certain things and I knew how to do, like, I could operate a business and I can, I could, you know, figure all that stuff out. But I didn't have the reach in the industry that he did. And he had the artist's point of view and he had like built his own career doing this. And so there, I, I, could, I could see that puzzle pieces, those things coming together in a way that was so much stronger than just the two of us separately doing it. Did you know him before? No. Like this is incredible because you also kind of risk feeling like this was my idea or, oh, yeah. you know, like you were really able to see how you could complement each other, especially with somebody that you have just met. Like what a cosmic connection that was. You know, it's something that wasn't even, it was cosmic at the beginning and it's not something that was, you know, it, it hasn't always been easy because he's also had to maintain his career. I've also been the one really largely running the business, but not always the face of the business. So there's a lot of like, like I've had people say like, oh, you're Dan's wife or whatever, you know, because like, a lot of miss yeah. like people just don't understand our roles and it doesn't really matter. But it and then there's all this sort of like how, you know, how, what roles do you play in the company and how do people relate to you and all this stuff. And to his credit, Dan, like, I mean, he is, you know, known as the nicest guy in the industry. He really is. And we've been able to work through so many really important co-founder relationship issues in such an open way that I like I have to give him full credit 
um, and just coming along this journey with me and being able to work out some of those things that are behind the, behind the scenes. And yeah, when you're strangers starting a business, like it is marriage. You are mm-hmm. now tied to each other, whether you like it or not, especially when you take on investors. And yeah. so you need to figure things out. And at the end of the day, you often are each other's biggest supporters, too, because nobody else knows what it's like except for this other person, you know? Well, you have to rely on each other completely. And myself and Kristen, in, in all our ventures together, we kind of look at exactly how, how you have and like, okay, I, I'm going to do these parts. I am good at this. I suck at this. And Kristen happens to be good at it. So this division of skills and, and talent and tasks is... 100% necessary. Yeah. And I I need to rely on her for certain things completely and she needs to rely on me and I feel like that's those conversations have to be had early on to get to and always like it's a constantly evolving thing to have those chats and to know what your role is and to let it all come to life. And Dan is the eternal optimist too. He's actually always he's always got a perfect line which is not just be ironic but like that he's a great lyricist but also he really i i lean on him to save me from the edge a lot of times when i'm feeling because i'm a realist and i'm also you know i can be optimistic too but i'm also just like especially lately with the industry i'm just like what are we doing here that's worse than it was before (laughs) you know that's hard oh we've been going through that ourselves and different ways it's just yeah entering a recession is uh, a tricky time to be an artist that's for sure but but you guys i mean we're on the the heels i'll say of the pandemic i mean there's difference of opinion maybe out there of where we're at but you guys flourished during that time you really were able to pivot and grow and expand like what a what a gift that was business-wise and did you did you was this something that you would have experimented with anyway, do you think, taking things more virtual? Well, because we were remote, we were already using Zoom. Yeah. So we were really familiar with it. And um, you know, the first thing we actually booked was a makeup tutorial with Christina Martin. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't think we should try music. And then Dan was like, screw it, I'm gonna do it. And so like the day after, I think, or even the day before, I think I had booked something with Christina for the Monday and he did it on a Sunday. And he's always the guinea pig for everything we do. So and, she did his makeup. Yeah. <laughs> no. So so he did. He just did a normal music show on the Sunday, and so that was our first. And this was ten days after the lockdown, and so I forget. I think we sold tickets through our platform, but we really just kind of mashed it together. It was a lot of um, imperfect technology at the beginning, and it was. I remember getting off that call, and I was crying and FaceTime Dan and I was just like that felt amazing like you could see the audience you could see inside their homes and their pets and their you know their kids and stuff like that and they were so enjoying these shows and we 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 realized we were giving hope and that persisted for so many we did 1200 shows online during the pandemic most of them Zoom, Zoom shows I know and and these are like you know we did one with Jill Barber and it was a Mother's Day theme and people were um, inviting their moms who weren't, they hadn't seen 
in a long time. And yeah. so they were sharing this show together. And then Jill would call the moms up and they would talk and their daughters or their sons or whatever. And they would talk to each other. Over, and we were all just crying, you know, and then there was like epic dance parties that would happen after the artist would finish. And then for some, for some, they would leave it on and the audience would just have a dance party. Dan would run a playlist and they would just have a dance party. There was one guy who came back and it was like a good half an hour, maybe 45 minutes after the show had ended and everybody was still there. So we started playing again because nobody would leave the Zoom show. It was ridiculous. At the start of the pandemic, we, myself and Bruce, did uh, an online bingo. We yeah. thought this would be fu Epic. funny to do. And the first one, like, had a pretty darn good turnout. There's like 300 people. And like, that is crazy. 300 people are tuned in. There's thousands and thousands of comments. And then the next day, we just got messages from so many people, a lot of strangers too. And they're like, that was exactly what I needed. Yeah. And they're like, wait a second. We're just at home doing nothing. We can do this fairly often. And so we started doing that combined with just online performances ourselves yeah. uh, bi-weekly. And through that, we met so many people who are now good friends. So many people came into our life that just we would have never crossed paths with before. And we raised almost $20,000 for charities That's through the amazing. whole thing. And just during the pandemic, these things that we never would have thought of just became such an important part of our culture and just who we are. And you did 1,200 concerts. Yeah. Like, and every single one of them would be bringing joy to someone who needed something in the moment. Yeah. So it's... Well, and you're both really describing a sense of community. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, it's interesting because art has so much power to do that, but it's not always the the motivating factor like you're you're wanting to profile artists and ha you know, allow them to still have an income through this hard time and whatnot and that might be the the motivator and then this beautiful outcome unknowingly has been the friendships that are made and like you talking about the bingo there's people too that reached out to mike and bruce but they have become friends with each other too like yeah. oh i you're so and so's yeah. online name That's from right. Bingo, and That's right. like we have, we know one woman who flew from Saskatchewan and was picked up at the airport from someone she's never met, but they played Bingo. Yes, and they're she stayed with her and they're best friends. Yeah, like the, what an incredible. I love that. Yeah, and I'm sure you hear these stories all the time. Yeah, like yeah. Oh, I saw that show too, and I stayed up dancing with you, and yeah. the babies waving, and oh my god, yeah, yeah. what I a had beautiful experience. I had favorite audience members for sure. Of course, yeah, yeah. it's just community is i think at the heart of everything that an artist does like, i'm sure there's some people who can just whatever go into their studio create put out to the world and just be completely focused but that's rare like people who create need to find the people that appreciate it and then those people they want to find the the people that also appreciate it because it's just you know they're going to be like-minded mm. And having the ability to create community is one of the most important things, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I know people are overwhelmed more than ever right now, maybe because of the pandemic and coming back to whatever it is we're in right now. Um, but I think you need more ways to get 
through stress that isn't just, you know, burying it, but but delivering yourself from it. And I think art is the greatest yeah. way to do that. I've always believed that. That's why I'm such a big defender of art is yeah. I just, it's not, it's not just that I think that, you know, there's injustice in the way that it works. It's more that I'm like, we need this, guys. Yeah. Like the world needs to experience art in order to process just what we go through every day. And I think it's so important. And it is hard to sell that. Like that's not... It you know? is, but it's it's almost like this unspoken thing where we, right. can, we can talk about yoga and meditation and these other tools that are used to decompress. And of course, those are important and work for lots of people. But art isn't marketed often in that way, right. even though it has that impact. And I would argue that during the pandemic, especially, we were consuming art more than ever. Mm -hmm. But you're not the, the average consumer might not be thinking about it in that way. No. So the podcast you're listening to, you're probably watched more movies during that time and listened to more music and attended some of these events. But the value in terms of inflation has not climbed the way that most commodities have. No. So do you see that as a remaining injustice still? Yeah, I mean, you know, even the even the really uh, popular touring artists that I know, um, they are facing lack of ticket sales, four times the costs, um, you know, just insurance is expensive. Any service providers is hu super expensive gas accommodations. You know, it's all the same. And there's very little desire to increase ticket prices. Um, and the bottleneck of people trying to play at certain spaces is just massive. And so, like, the pain is more acute than ever. The problem that we were trying to solve back in 2017 when we founded the company is actually more acute than ever. But at the same time, like, I, you know, before when you'd go out to a show, I used to be able to drag a couple of friends along with me. And you can't compete with, like, Netflix and just pajamas, pajamas anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to get people out to see new music. Yeah. And that, um, you know, and nostalgia is really the only thing that's selling at this point, like the Elton John tour and that sort of thing. And so, like, you know, if I could fast forward five years, I'm like, what have we done to develop new artists during this time period? TikTok? Is that uh, the answer here? Because, you know, that's fine. But none of those artists, you're going to thrust them on stage and to open for Billie Eilish? Is that their first time playing on stage? Like, what? Yeah. what's the ecosystem it's, of development now? It feels like it's a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say the death, but I'll just say the death of the middle ground artist. Right. Because people are always going to pay $200 or so, go see Katy Perry or whoever that big artist is. But those people aren't necessarily appreciating the person still grinding it out who is trying to get to a level where they can, well, not necessarily be Katy Perry, but uh, be someone making a comfortable living. And it's just a struggle for yeah people, people like myself, like most of the bands in Halifax are, are trying to just reach those new audiences. And, and luckily social media has been a way to reach out. And our last show in the city just three days ago, we we had a lot of debate before the show on ticket price, and most shows we play on our own are thirty dollars, 
and we we had two other bands. So in theory, maybe that should be a $45 ticket. Right. But we can't charge $45 tickets for a rock show because that's what whatever big wreck coming to town costs. It's right. also what a bag of apples costs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> so we, we were like, okay, it's a big venue. We want as many people in there as possible. So we said, let's do $20 tickets mm-hmm. and see what happens. And 600 people came out. Yeah. So you found the sweet spot. Found sort of a sweet spot for mm-hmm. sure. It worked perfect for that show. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean lowering ticket prices is the answer or anything. But in that particular moment, three bands, lower ticket prices, big room, fill it up, worked for us. But I don't know if that will work again. Well, it's interesting the ticket price thing because, you know, almost always people make ticket price choices with incorrect or you know erroneous information or no information yeah and and the way that people buy when if you ask somebody how much they'll spend on a ticket it'll be completely different from what they actually will depending on the artists and the time of day or the time of the week or whatever time of the month (laughs) um you know it's like you're not necessarily going to nail it it's sometimes luck but what we found is we have pay what you want on almost all our shows. Now we suggest it for yeah. most people and people always spend more money. They always pay more than you suggest. Yeah. It's amazing. And that's, I think, a really interesting learning for from our point of view in terms of just like pick what you need and and do what you want, but then give some room for people to give more because they always will. That's, that's such a great approach. And maybe this is, um, you know, that example will answer my question, but recognizing there used to be sort of a formula to how the industry worked or at least selling albums you know like you'd produce x number of cds they would be this amount of money no matter who you were and now you know on the heels of music week um so there was some advice about every two months release a song or like it's everybody's just kind of playing around to try to figure out what's going to work so Mm. i was curious to see if you had any anticipated formulas that you see happening in the future or is it just kind of a bit of a gray area right now i don't see recorded music um making a comeback in terms of people buying it uh even though vinyl sales have been good i you know i hate to say that too because like it's not like i I want streaming services to win it's just that you know, the reason we have streaming services is because people pirated music. for f- They downloaded it and gave it away for free. There wasn't, you know, a Napster began because of those pirates, but it wasn't, that was the, that was the fans going after something that they could technically acquire and then not caring about compensating the creator. Mm-hmm. And that is, I would say, a pretty pervasive attitude in our culture, our society of like, I want the healthcare, but I don't want to pay the nurses. Yeah. I want the education, but I don't want to pay the teachers. I want the art, but I don't want to pay the artists. It happens all the time. And so it's hard to fight that wave. And I guess what I'm saying is like, I want to, I want to put my focus and attention on something that I really know has intrinsic value. Not that a recording doesn't have intrinsic value, but I'm, I'm looking to places in the world where I continuously see placing 
value, which is paying $200 for Katy Perry tickets. So how do you, how do you, that's why I put my eggs in the live performance basket, because for me, it is a crucible of experience that you can put so much into and really get a lot out of, and it can be really stripped back or elevated to a huge experience with multiple bands on a show or whatever you want to do. But it, it, at least you can, you can live off of that. And, you know, I wish that we had like a minimum basic income for artists and like all these other things that we could do to support artists in their creative times when they don't perform and they're not extracting the thing and having to be just like producers to consumers. And, you know, but we are in the system that we are. And so I think for me, it's always been about, yeah, how do we how do we just really focus on live performance and the things that are going to bring the artist joy and keep their cup full so that they can keep creating. I feel like a lot of people without thinking about it are against something like uh universal basic income. They think that uh, oh, these people are going to get free money, they're going to become lazy. But during the pandemic, oh yeah, that's I, what was happening. <laughs> well, I when the the CERB existed, yeah. and uh, yeah, of course I took advantage of it. I would have starred if I didn't. But I didn't have to think about okay, I got to go play. I got to book a show at this pizza place and make two hundred and fifty bucks so I can pay my phone bill and mortgage and everything coming up. I'm like, I am completely free and. I wrote a book and released three albums yeah. because I wasn't yeah. worried about money. Yeah. Like I didn't have to, and not like there was a lot of money they were giving, but at the same time, like I, I could still do online shows, do the things I needed to do and not at all be worried about how I'm going to survive. And that was, I don't want to say the pandemic was a good thing or anything, but it wasn't for me, it was the most creative period I've ever had. I think I think you're one of millions of artists who feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it was, I think, I mean, you give um, artists a chance to create. And honestly, like, there's a division. We talk about artists and, you know, the regular humans. But I do really believe that everybody's kind of born an artist and they just get it beaten out of them in school or wherever by their parents or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> like, you can't do that. And so all of the, all of that you know, to be human is to create. And so the ones that have committed to that as their life, they need that period of time to sink into a little nest and just create yeah. and not be constantly considering how that piece of art is going to be consumed. And I really push back even on the consumer model of the relationship with art. It's always an exchange. It's always in community. It's always you, you as the audience member are part of the closing of the circle of that art being made. Like, you know, the, the whole, there's a whole philosophical thing about, you know, what is, is the art, you know, part of the artist or whatever, you know? And I think in a lot of ways it is like that extension that baby is born and then you pass it on to the world. And then, that baby becomes an adult with all this other community that you don't have a part of, but that you brought it into the world. And so yeah. you have to be able to relate. You have to be able to develop. You have to be able to nurture. And that's that's not a model that we've built around art at all. Like it doesn't, it really diminishes every yeah. part of that. Yeah. And it's about how it's received often as well from the mm -hmm. artist's perspective. We've talked with other guests about this too, that, if you're writing a song, for example, how important is it that it's shared 
that it's received in a certain way. Mm. Like, how does that impact the purity of the creation? And yeah, there's varying opinions on that, of course. But I remember talking about this with Tori and Zach, Mike's uh, band members as well. And like, how often are you just creating something for you and not sharing it? Like, that doesn't happen often because you don't really have time or capacity to just experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to ask, you spent some time... um, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I know I read an article that you wrote many years ago, so may or may not still ring true, but you you, t- you toyed with the idea of staying there yeah. instead of coming back to Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And now living in such a virtual world with your work, do you still feel like this will be your forever home? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm so glad I made that decision to stay. I, you know, at the time, um, we were, you know, wanting to, my husband works in film and we had the kids at the time. And so I actually left um, for four months and he took care of the kids. And um, it it was a real game changer decision to stay um, rather than, you know, we really wanted to do the big fish, small pond thing because we really felt at the time we could make a big impact. And there was a lot of pushback when I was starting a, you know, a tech company and going after funds. They're like, well, you can't do that from little old Halifax, Nova Scotia. And lo and behold, the pandemic showed that we absolutely could. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we raised our seed round remotely um, after doing some traveling initially. But, you know, like we closed $3 million in in equity funds remotely from Halifax. And I'm really proud of that. It, it just shows for me, and I think hopefully for other people, that you can do a lot from this place. And uh, it is always about uh, this place physically is a nurturing place for me. So I need I need to be here. I need to be by the ocean. I need to be in the woods. It is yeah, every time I fly back here, I'm just like, oh god, this is this is where I need to be. It doesn't matter where I travel in the world. It's always home that really brings me the greatest joy. <laughs> yeah. What does Cape Breton mean to you? I mean, Cape Breton is you know like the center of that joy for sure it so we bought my um family's place um a farm 60 acres and a non-working farm uh in Inver- Inverness County where you're from yeah and uh and it is like this really sacred place that um the forest hasn't really been touched and it's got a brook running through it and a waterfall on the property and these multiple fields and just wildflowers and wild blueberries and you know and the house is like over 100 years old there's a barn with a stage on it where there's a show that happens every summer and it's just it's heaven for us and and we took it over after living there during the pandemic and um it is for us the future of like a location where we're we really want to start an artist retreat actually and so we've been working on that idea and that developing that plan for a while now Wow, you have... We'll go. Yeah. 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 Where's the application? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you want to do concerts there too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I really want to work on... I've been talking with some folks in, um, you know, who work in, in restorative health and um, about what it would look like to combine restorative health and a music festival. And um, I'm really in love with that idea. I also have a full roster of all female identifying folks for a festival. I think that'd be awesome to do in Cape Breton. I also just want to bring, I just want to bring really interesting, different stuff to Cape Breton and make it a bit of a destination. 
um, spot for music. Yeah, in my that's, spare time. That's on Canada's <laughs> musical coast too. Exactly. That's what they're labeling Inverness County now. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. There's a festival. I know uh, that one location is New York, and I feel like they have a second location as well. It's an organization in the states, and I can't remember the name of it. I have a T-shirt. Heart something, isn't it? I was going to say love. Love. Yeah. Love heart. Something. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I'll, I'll dig up the name, but they. Essentially, their premise is that they're pairing musicians with alternative healthcare mm-hmm. practitioners mm-hmm. and almost making an exchange. So mm-hmm. it could be maybe a, a live performance or a piece, a painting or whatever, and you can go get your teeth cleaned, like love that kind that. of idea. So oh, I love yeah, that. that reminded me of like I don't know if that's exactly where you're going, but it's a yeah, it's another missing link. It's it's making some of these like not all musicians have health benefits, so yeah. this is a good way to make sure they're taken that. care of. That's but, smart. Yeah. I reached out to them to see if they would ever be interested in setting up in Halifax. And yeah. they're, this was years ago. It's something I should revisit, but they're, they were really just looking for somebody to spearhead. But they're fully established. And it works kind of like a, a festival in that it's, it's a week long, more or less, and they're hosting different shows. But all of those healthcare providers are pooled in, much like the artists. So they're intermingling. And like in that week, you can go get your physio, your... Your dental, your, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's great. I recorded an EP for someone to build a woodshed. Yeah. uh, Really? Yeah, I love doing exchanges. Oh, we trade things all the time. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah. A lot of massages and haircuts for paintings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is like when you kind of usurp the existing system and get what you need. You've you've done it. Yeah. You know, the platform you're using for live concerts, do you think that translates to other forms of art or is that something you've thought about? Maybe it's theater or live painting. Yeah. Yeah. We've done theater. We've done dance. We've done um, spoken word. um, What else? Anything. Anything that is we've had, um, you know, way back when I did open mics for Music Nova Scotia, we would have uh, resident visual artists, uh, you know, bring in their work during the show and they'd sell during the show. I've always been really interested in, in, in bringing any kind of art, um, into those spaces. Um, same with like my friend who was the jeweler I was talking about before I, I, she reminded me the other day I hosted her first jewelry show, uh, in my house, you know, anything like that, you know, I think can be put into a space. You just have to be kind of, I really like working with artists and thinking about like, okay, what is this music want in terms of an environment yeah and being really deliberate and intentional about that it's what fun does the music want yeah because then as an audience member too it's not just about what am i going to hear um it's about how am i going to feel in the space who else is going to be there you know like what's going on what am i looking at on the walls you know who else is with me what how am i sitting you know yeah some of the best shows i've ever played have been small intimate house concerts too mm-hmm. like it's just just a unique experience because everybody's in a space where they're they're comfortable they're already at ease because yeah. sometimes out at a venue people you know they're just things are a little bit different maybe have a little social anxiety or something but when it's in when all these variables are under their control they can be at ease then you get to perform to these people who are just completely excited to see you that's right and yeah. Yeah, I've had experiences, especially the Boathouse, where you've been to a few live painted at that one last year. But a couple friends of ours have this little boathouse on the Bredore in a big pond, and 
was about 15 or 20 people jammed in and there's no, no mics, no amplification. And it's just people who love music to the core know every word to our songs. Yeah. And it's just every time it's just something magical happens. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And even like things around seem to happen that are magical. Like an eagle flew by one year just as like the sun was setting. Yeah. It's just a, a special place. And I feel like when all those energies are combined that something magical does happen. I I think it's it's not an it's not a coincidence. I think it's actually when you put so much intention into sharing yeah. art, you actually just make yourself more present. Mm-hmm. And everybody comes more present and when you're more present you're like, "Oh, I really appreciate like the blue in this Draw club yeah. that you have hanging on my, you know, like you know, there's just there's just different things kind of come into full focus, yeah. and that feels different than just kind of breezing through life without noticing. So I yeah. think, it, yeah, when you when you do do it really intentionally in those spaces, I mean, and I gotta say, like honestly, some of it for me is about reducing um, the temptation and the and the need to like drink or just like not just just not be perfectly sober (laughs) during I think a lot of people have experienced art not sober and they've never done it sober and it's kind of a different experience and they think it's going to be scary and they think that they have to and you know obviously I'm not I quit drinking for a long time and then I came back and just I'm very moderate about it now but it's one thing that I noticed a lot when I was not drinking about how much people miss when they're just shit face watching a show and you're just like wow i mean i guess that's part of the experience too but also i really appreciate when i'm in it you know like i'm really in it with the artist and you know the rest of the people there you're you're hyper focused hyper focused yeah yeah Yeah, and that that's i remember on another episode chris and you asked like what's the best audience to play for is it big numbers or what and it's definitely as long as people are into what you're doing, like I've played the Boston tree lighting ceremony in oh, front yeah. of 30,000 people. And like, that's obviously pretty cool to say, but they're not 30,000 people who showed up to see the town heroes. They showed up to see Belle Biv DeVoe who was on after us. <laughs> hey, but, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> but, but yeah, pe- people enjoyed it. 30,000 people cheered when we finished our song, which feels pretty cool, but yeah, but get, the 15 people at the boathouse are 15 people at the boathouse is just again it's an it's an energy for sure mm-hmm. and I'm I'm grateful for all the opportunities but I couldn't imagine what it would be like if 30,000 people were mm-hmm. the same as those 15 right. people. <laughs> right. <laughs> Could it be the same? I wonder. Well, I think to an extent like when whatever the Foo Fighters play Wembley Stadium yeah. and there's 80,000 people sing along to their song. That yeah. must be just something that you can't describe. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes about artists who just do really stripped down sets and how they can command a huge audience, how yeah. special that is. It's really, really special. It's hard, you know? It's, uh, and just being in the presence of people when they have, things dialed in it's just amazing and even at our show on the weekend uh the first act george woodhouse i'm not sure if you're familiar with him but george is he's one of my favorite front people of all time in the band and i just watched him just 
kind of control the the room in this way. Right. And I was just I was just so excited that I could tell that his band was having this moment. It was the biggest stage they ever played. Oh, and there's a bunch of people out by that time. Usually at whatever nine o'clock, the room isn't filled, but it was just all these energies colliding in the right way. And then, yeah, the just it makes everyone in the room feel better when yeah. when. There's so much joy when you witness someone having that moment. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it's almost more powerful than having it for yourself because <laughs> you get to watch it. Yeah, it's hard to be it's hard to witness and be in it at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But you it's reciprocated. Like you mm-hmm. you like you were saying earlier, it's a feeling. Like you're you're creating a feeling mm-hmm. at a show. And that's what people remember. It's why they come back and buy that's other right. tickets. That's why people actually buy things. Is yeah. the feeling that you give yeah. them. So it's like yeah. if you if you really want to feed into the capitalist uh, methodology, there, it's just like <laughs> really gotta just make them feel good. Yeah, I don't like doing that, but if it's gonna sell me some CDs, <laughs> how do you, Laura, with so much on the go, stay grounded and present and maintain that feeling of okayness? <sighs> um. You know, it's so silly, but I always forget how much physical activity really, really makes a difference. Like I play basketball on Monday nights and uh, it always makes people feel better. Um, Are you in a league? No, I just playing pickup now. I used to be in a, in a social league for years and, and uh, I used to coach when I was a kid yeah. and stuff. But now I just do pickup. Like just go to a court? And- yeah, we just go to a court. and. Yeah. Hip yeah. check each other for yeah, a while. Yeah, no, it's great. And um I I think for for me the biggest thing is I I do like it's been a struggle with the family over these years of not working all the time. And I don't mean like I'm at my computer all the time. I mean like I'm just always thinking about how yeah. to solve this problem. Um and so remembering to check out like properly at the end of the day and then you know, we're a family that sits down and has dinner every night. And, yeah. you know, I walk the dog every day. And just like having those really normal ritualistic check-ins is incredibly important. So, um, yeah, I think just knowing how to check out and knowing how to keep my body, like, active and engaged are, like, the only things that keep me sane. Yeah. <laughs> how yeah, do huge. you check out? Like, what do you do? Because I, I, I have that struggle as well. And... Yeah, I mean, I I actually really, I walk the dog for a really long time sometimes. Like, I'll go walk all over Halifax, and I have a great Pyrenees, so she's game, right? And so, and I'll listen to music, or I'll listen to nothing, and I'll just walk. Um, I also float. Yeah. Big plug for the Flotation Center. We had Lindsay on here, one of her first Legend, yeah. Yeah. Met her when she was, you know, early days. And uh, I think... What she does there and how they run that place is amazing. Um, spent a lot of time, like, you know, swimming or in water or just in the woods. I've recently had COVID and isolated up at the farm and had a nap in the moss in the woods. And I felt like I was mm. cured in a day. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm cured. Cured myself. That's what they should be prescribing, really. Just go sleep in the moss for yeah. an hour. <laughs> You'll be fine. Our yard is actually all moss. We there you go. Grass. We're a... We could sell tickets for moss naps. Moss there you go. naps. Yeah. Ten bucks an hour. Nice. Deal. Little, yeah, a little tick juice to add to the yeah, ticket. Be fine. We gotta avoid that. <laughs> yeah, good call. It's not bad up in Cape Our no, poor no. cat had a tick on it and it was it was in enough that it took some effort to get out. Oh, and no. we ended up pulling like 
quite a bit of fur around it oh he was he was pretty upset with us but i think we were just as upset that we had done it oh yeah or george oh george we'll introduce you in a bit oh can't wait um so what do you see happening in the next little bit like where where does side door go where does Laura Simpson go? <laughs> um, you know, I I feel like I say this every year, but I'm like, this is our do or die year. We're either going to just, you know, our our business model, Side Door's business model is built for scale. That's why we have, that's why I made it a corporation. That's why I went after investment. It The business model is to take 10% of ticket sales. And that we think is fair because basically there's no upfront cost to the artist. You know, we're in it to win it with the shows. We want to make sure that those shows do well. But it doesn't, it means that we're spending way more than we earn and will until we have a certain amount of shows that we do. Um, and so it's got to take off in a huge way for us to actually survive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're doing a big push into the U.S. Um, we're just about to announce a huge touring program where we're going to do a minimum guarantee for artists who are touring in the u.s january february and march um who are also showcasing at south by or folk alliance um and it's a way for us to sort of like de-risk some of these shows and get people to try us out and get into the biggest music market we really want to push more into the u.s we have Mm -hmm. about 15 percent of our shows there now we really want to amp that up these are all business future things generally like i you know I do retain a lot of hope for, I hate saying the music industry, but I I do retain a lot of hope for artists when I attend shows. That's where I actually get fueled up. Like when I get to go to live shows, I'm like, oh yeah, this is what this is all about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I worry a lot about the way things are going. And I do think that there needs to be a lot more actual intervention in terms of just taking care of artists on a fundamental level, um, whether it's like copyright, um, you know, just making sure that people are getting paid properly or just like if it is universal basic income or something like that. But I think there, I think we're, we're headed in a direction that feels like an emergency and, um, it's it's like the frog in the boiling water. Like it's just we're in it right now, and maybe we're not boiling, but I really feel like really we're in hot. It. Yeah, mm. and it's it's hard to get a disparate group of people. To, the musicians are so ever the, the industry is so spread apart, and everybody's kind of working on their own. But I do see really good groups working together, and we've been fortunate to work with some of those groups to kind of do a bit of a shift in how we approach things. And so that's yeah. what I'm hopeful about. But I think, I think there is a reckoning coming for just how we work with new artists. I think that needs to happen. Is the emergency specific to finances? It's specific to being able to um, live in a sustainable way. Like it's, you know, it, yeah, it is a lot about compensation and maybe that's where my focus has been most of my life, but that's because, you know, it's just so unbalanced, you know, what we get from it and what we give back. 
And so I think that that's why I kind of focus on the money part because that's how we function. But, you know, you guys have proven with the trades and things like that, that there's other ways of doing that. But I think it's in and around just like assigning and recognizing value for what is intrinsically there. Yeah. And I think the compensation is representative of so many like that impacts your mental health. It impacts your self-worth. It Mm -hmm. impacts your confidence, all of those things. So if you know, I've been through this myself. Like if I'm not selling anything, it starts to feel scary, of course, because I have to buy groceries still. But you're also like, is this still relevant? Are people still liking my work? Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like if you had that consistent, stable income, that's less important. You don't worry about it in the same way. Mm-hmm. You can focus on your creativity. And I often wonder, like, imagine what might exist in the world mm-hmm. if that was removed from the people that are creating already beautiful things. Mm-hmm. How much more heightened could that be? Yeah. 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 I know. And I think that, you know, like, you just think about generally where the workforce is going and just so much has changed and so much is going to change really quickly in the next 20 years. Just technology is blasting through stuff right now. And I just think that... Um, you know, there was a, there was the guy who started, um, what was this like the, it was basically the version of, um, eBay and some other huge companies in Asia. And he had this great quote of just like talking about how soft skills are going to be the most important skills in the future because so much technical, technically driven, like work like that can be done by computers. Yeah. And you know, factories are just like run like machines, you know, like anything that's made, it's just, you know, you're losing huge swaths of the workforce that work in that kind of labor and that creative and softer skills are going to be the stuff that we actually need. Uh-huh. And I I hope for that. That's the future I hope for. Yeah. You know. Can any artist work with you? Yeah. Okay. It's one of the sort of like... um I guess controversial things that we do is we don't gatekeep. We don't gatekeep who can work with us. And I feel really strongly about that. We work with curators like, you know, we're saying Folk Alliance and South by Southwest chosen artists get this special thing. But there's no barrier for anybody to use side door. And we do not discriminate in terms of like who's going to get a bigger picture on the you know thing or whatever. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like it's meant to be giving access. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're very proud of you and it's so amazing to see. And again, like I said earlier, I just want to reiterate that uh, having people like you in our corner means so much and you're doing amazing things and just, just keep doing it because we we need you. No, I appreciate that. (laughs) Can't stop, won't stop. It's so impressive, Laura. You're, you're just one of those people that, yeah, keeps us inspired because it's not just it's not just your your caring for the artist. It's your action that you're taking and you're always got the wheels turning. So, yeah, it makes me f- want to work harder. Aww. <laughs> really? Yeah. I guess you just chill with your cat and just hang well, and make yeah. her. Lay in the moss. We'll go lay in the moss with George. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. And uh, where can people find you and Side Door? And uh, yeah, SideDoorAccess.com, all over the socials. You know, doing the thing. I'm I'm Nova Scotia music on most socials and yeah. quite, you know, responsive to people. And so you can find me. Beautiful. Thanks a million. And uh, people are definitely going to love hearing this. Oh, thanks, you guys. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, okay, everyone, cheers. for listening.
Well, that was an amazing chat with Laura, who's just a awesome person in every imaginable way. And yeah, we are just really appreciating all the support, and we're seeing a lot, lot of just new faces chiming in with comments and just nice words about the podcast. So we really want to thank people out there who are who are listening and spreading the word. And we, we say this all the time, but it just means so much to us. And keep keep telling people. That's the biggest way that the word of the podcast gets out there. Word of mouth. Just talk about it. Tell a friend. Send an email with a link. We hope that everyone has a fabulous 2023. I know the last couple of years might have felt longer than most, but we're here to keep you company every week at the very least. And like Mike said, we love hearing from you and hope to have more wonderful chats with our new friends in the new year. Cheers, folks. Happy New Year.